0: Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Maggie Haberman, a White House correspondent for The New York Times and an analyst at CNN. She previously worked at The New York Post and Politico. She has been at The Times since 2015, and this year was part of the team that won a Pulitzer for coverage of the Russia story. wanted to have her on the show this week to discuss the latest breaking news out of Washington, as well as the life of a White House reporter in 2018. Maggie Haberman joins me now from Slate Studios in Brooklyn. Hi, Maggie. Hi, Isaac. I just want to say before we formally start that you and I know each other a little bit and occasionally uh, discuss politics. Uh, Is that fair? I I think that's more than fair. All right. It's generous even. Uh, Okay. Uh, Well, I want to start with with (laughs) generosity. So (laughs) my first question for you is, how is covering the White House right now, mid-May 2018, different than it was on January 21st, 2017, Trump's first full day in office?
1: It's an excellent question. I mean, his first full day in office felt uh, uh, combative. Felt like everything that we knew on the campaign trail. It was somebody who was coming into a job that he had spent basically no time thinking about until he won it. Um, and it was still very unclear what the policy goals would be. We're now part of the way through his second year, and I do think we have a clearer sense of where he wants to take this presidency now. It it, it does not please, uh, I think, a majority of people um, in a lot of respects, but there are things he is doing that are are pretty consistent with what he said he would do as a candidate and that should be unsurprising. So the difference is January 21st it was sort of watching this administration fumble around trying almost literally trying to figure out where things were, how it worked, what to do. Trump was focused on his crowd size and 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 trying to label the press, the opposition party. That's still the same. But he's in the middle of you know, policy-wise, what could be considered a decent couple of weeks. Uh, the uh, unemployment rate went down again. I realize that there are conflicting opinions as to why that is, but it's a it's a yardstick that's that's always used. Um, you know, there is some some movement of some kind on North Korea. We don't know where it will end, but but it is it is certainly a beginning. He has withdrawn from the Iran deal, which uh, is obviously being met with uh, enormous criticism, but to his foreign policy supporters uh, was what he said he would do. And instead, we're we're focusing um, and we're focusing on because it's in front of us. And frankly, it's what his lawyer Rudy Giuliani keeps focusing on. We're focusing on um, the Southern District of New York investigation into Trump's longtime lawyer, Michael Cohen. Is your feeling that the
0: reason that he's been able to be more successful at achieving his goals that, I mean, that he's gotten lucky, that he's learned things about the way government works or the people around him have learned things about the way government works? What is your theory about that?
1: I think it's all of the above. And I did a piece about this a couple of months ago um, that he was more emboldened uh, in his in his second year, which which is not uh, anomalous for a president to be, you know, feeling freer in their second year than they did in their first. Uh, But in his case, there is still this massive gap in terms of what he actually understands about the job and what he thinks he understands about the job. But I think he feels like he gets this to to a, a decent extent now that he doesn't need to have, you know, appointees picked for him or decisions made for him in the way that they were a lot last year. And I think he is more more comfortable in the role. I also think he has gotten lucky uh, in, in, in certain respects. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of presidents have gotten lucky. I, I just think it's I think it's a combination of factors. I still think at the end of the day, he cannot get out of his own way. And and that's what we're seeing right now. Any other president with this fact set would have advisors saying to them, Stop talking about these investigations. Just focus on what you've done. Focus on the tax bill, which is what Republican congressional leaders want him to talk about because it will help them in the midterms. Or focus on what you're doing in North Korea. Stop, you know, having Rudy Giuliani pick up the phone in the middle of dinner when when everyone calls and, and pop off about the investigations.
0: Rudy didn't pick up my call when I tried to get an interview with him for sleep, but...
1: He often doesn't pick mine up either, so there you go.
0: Is there one thing about reporting on Trump or thinking about the way he as a human being operates that you feel like you got wrong or mis- misinterpreted or underestimated? Or is there some way that you kind of view him that's different than you thought?
1: No, honestly, you know, I I, I think that he is, he is who I thought he was. I don't think that that has really uh, changed. Um, I think the degree to which he was willing to Honestly, to sort of it isn't really take advice, but to allow himself to be soothed or placated on a, on a number of different policy fronts over the course of the first year surprised me. You're seeing him do a massive course correction on that now, but no, I mean this is this is who he is. This is all who he is. This is always who he is. There's no there's no difference. There's no difference for him in the White House to the campaign, and there's no difference from him in the campaign to you know. Twitter voice celebrity reality show star Donald Trump. No, there, I, I've not been surprised by anything about what he's done.
0: You mentioned that there were a lot of people in the first year who he appointed. Sometimes he was kind of coerced or pushed into appointing who may not have been Trump loyalists, but had connections to the Republican establishment or to the national security establishment. Now he's surrounded with more, more loyalists. Has that changed how easy or hard it is to report on the White House? And has, has it changed your job in any noticeable way? getting people to talk to you
1: no i mean i think that look it's our job there's always it's a it's a big government there's always somebody who wants to talk right so um i mean our job is to get lots of different people to talk to us and that was true last year it's true this year i think that what is different and this is really not so much in the reporting it's just different as an observer is this sort of constant knife fighting of Reince Priebus, Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner that dominated so much of last year in terms of the reporting and in terms of where everyone's focus was within the White House, particularly the comm shop, which is not driving a communications message about White House work. It is basically like a like a like a weaponized operation um, that's sometimes trained within the White House Um, that dominated so much attention absent that Kelly is not no drama. But it is a different kind of drama. There's no sort of centralized force uh, in the way that there was last year. And so what's ended up happening is you've got a lot of these little fiefdoms and and empires being established. Um, You have a sort of decentralized National Economic Council because Gary Cohen ran it pretty aggressively. Um, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, I think is trying to make moves to be more of a assertive figure. Uh, As Larry Kudlow tries to figure out exactly what his job is, uh, Larry Kudlow being uh, Gary Cohn's replacement. You've seen John Bolton, I think, try to build a bit of a fiefdom in a way that McMaster, who he replaced, never could. But I don't think that changes how we do our job. I just think the nature of that White House has changed somewhat.
0: Was it a mistake in hindsight how much we all focused on Jared and Ivanka and their role in the White House or is or has their role declined so much? I mean, it's it, if you take a step back, it's shocking how little we read about them now or any influence they might have.
1: It's funny. And I, I think that that was um, by that's by design lately, although I know that they have complained to people that they feel that they are, again, getting too much negative coverage, quote unquote. I mean, sometimes it's just that there are bad fact sets and that's what gets covered. Uh. I think there was too much focus on them as as moderating f- influences for two reasons. I think that people confused the phrase moderating influence with moderate presidency. Those are not the same, and I think that people were wrong about the extent to which they would be moderating influences both because I think they build themselves that way to people and because I think you had a lot of a lot of folks who were wish casting. Uh, and I don't mean reporters. I think reporters were just covering what they were being told, but they have not had um, dramatic influences, you know, and Trump has gotten quite weary of Kushner. Um, he There was a period where he was very upset about the daily drumbeat of negative stories because he always looks at it in terms of how it affects him or what it reflects about him, and he felt it reflected poorly on him.
0: Do you think Trump's enjoying his job at all?
1: No, I do not. And I have never thought he is enjoying this job. I think he enjoys the title, Mr. President. I think he enjoys Air Force One, Marine One. You know, the Beast, the big car, having a lot of Secret Service, you know, his Diet Coke, Bell, all of that stuff. I don't think he particularly likes living in the White House. And I certainly don't think he likes or enjoys the job. In fairness, I think that most presidents don't love the job when they are in it. But I think that others have experienced it uh, quite differently.
0: You and others have reported that the White House and Trump or people close to Trump see the Michael Cohen investigation as a bigger threat to the Trump presidency than the Mueller investigation. Do you have a sense of of why that is?
1: Yeah, it's because, look, with with Mueller, there's a couple of reasons, but one of which is that so far, as best as they can tell. And granted, look, everyone has the caveat. We don't know what Mueller knows, but they've now seen these questions that Mueller wants to ask the president. So they have a general sense of of where Mueller is going. The, The law is not settled, as you know, on whether the president can be indicted. I think that his legal team is of the opinion that he can't be. And so there won't be an indictment most likely. I'm just going through their view. I'm not saying what will be just how they see it um there won't be an indictment of him. there might be of other people around him um there could be a report to congress but that as my colleague michael schmidt made made clear and i didn't realize this is not mandated there doesn't have to be a report to congress although there likely will be and that collusion is going to be pretty hard to prove they also deny that it's there to be clear um the cohen investigation this is a this is a a U.S. it's a, a it's an aggressive office, the Southern District of New York, historically number one. Rudy Giuliani used to run it. Number two, it's the kind of probe that could just go on for years with no clear end. It's not; it doesn't have a, a narrow mandate the way that the Mueller probe does, the special counsel's probe does. And it's a pretty aggressive thing to execute that kind of a search warrant on somebody's lawyer and to get a judge to sign off on that. There usually has to be pretty good. Evidence that there will be an indictment. I mean, of the lawyer, Michael Cohen knows a lot, and I, his team is is resigned to the strong possibility that Cohen will flip. And you don't flip unless there's something to flip on. It's not this. This keeps getting talked about as if you know Trump has suggested that people just make stuff up. That's just not how this works. It has to be corroborated.
0: Yeah, you know, I'd been sort of of the opinion that Stormy Daniels was kind of the best possible story for Trump because you know, one, if you look at the polls, and two, just kind of my intuition which of course could be wrong about the american people is that people don't really care about sex scandals and even if there was a campaign finance violation no one was really going to get all that upset about Mm. it but trump himself seemed very worried about it and so I, i was sort of wondering if you thought that was about personal stuff because it's embarrassing and he's a married man and so on or and of course it could be both or that you know michael cohen knows much more that have to do with things beyond sex scandals
1: Look, I don't want to speculate on what Michael Cohen could know because because I have no idea what he knows. Um, but clearly, he has been in the middle of all. He was he was a fixer, um, and and Trump ran a business that sometimes had a, a semi underbelly. So you have to assume that there are things that he knew about when somebody is describing their job as fixing problems for someone that usually does not suggest you know that they're they're dealing with their tax returns. Do you know what I mean? Like, there this is. There's a level of vulnerability there. Well, in this and case, it could be that... dealing with
0: tax returns. Yeah.
1: Fair enough. I knew you were going to say that, by the way. Was, as it was out of my mouth, I thought I shouldn't have said that. Um, but I also think that some of this is about the personal, right? I mean, I do think that, A, I think that, you know, Cohen has um, has indicated that he would, A, Cohen has insisted that the affair claim was false, and B, he has insisted that just because a story is is false doesn't mean it's not damaging. And I do think he was operating from the perspective that this was harmful to Melania Trump and harmful to the president, then the candidate. And he wanted to try to spare. Look, that's actually the lens that I look at this from is that Cohen was trying to spare Trump embarrassment and and Melania Trump pain, because if we are being honest, most people at that point did not think Trump was going to win in October 2016, including Trump. So that's always been been how I see it.
0: What percentage of his time now do you have some sense is dealing with the Mueller investigation and the Cohen investigation?
1: I mean, I think a fair amount is dealing with both of those, although it's hard to crack the window of, quote unquote, executive time, right, which is that block of time he has in the morning from about six to about 11. Uh, He's constantly working the phones. And I think some of those phone calls, at least they used to be, uh, are with his lawyers. So that, that used to be one of the one of the windows in which he would talk to John Dowd a lot. So I think it is still occupying actual functional time. And then there's just the mind share it occupies. And you think the mind chart sure is Harder to quantify. It's significant, though. It's harder to quantify. Yeah, yeah, but I also think that Donald Trump is extremely good at compartmentalizing. So it's it's hard to say.
0: Rudy Giuliani is someone you know and have covered for a while. I don't know if you know him personally. A but really
1: long time. How long have you covered him? Since 1999. Actually, I was, on, I was on his re-election bus in 97.
0: Okay, so since his second term as mayor. Mm-hmm. What does Trump world make of Trump's decision to, Trump world, broadly speaking, of Trump's decision to hire Rudy Giuliani, part one and part two? Do you notice any differences in Giuliani just in sort of the way he goes about his business than you did 20 years ago?
1: He is um, not the same um, as he was 20 years ago. Um, He's, he's, and, and, and I know that the Popular thing, and he has answered questions about this is is to suggest that there's some issue with his mental faculties. I, I'm not a I'm not a diagnostician. Um, what I do think is he's is he has become much more ideologically rooted. Um, he has become much more somebody who you would see echoing what is said on Fox News as opposed to running against it. This is a guy who in '96 and granted he was running for re-election in a in a sanctuary city, but in '96 he skipped his party's convention because uh, he didn't agree with the platform. In part, you know, this is somebody who welcomed undocumented immigrants um, and tried to protect them when he was mayor. Um, This is somebody who when he ran for president himself in 2008, even post 9-11 was still talking about the the, the Big Ten Party. That is just not who this person is in terms of in terms of what people make of it. it, You know, there's a feeling. So there's a few things. One is that Trump basically did this, as I understand it, because he felt like he needed a name. On the press release about his new lawyers, he's very sensitive to the stories about how he can't hire any real lawyers, which he can't, um, for the most part—not not completely, but for the most part—and so he's gotten very upset about that. He um, was hiring this couple; I forget the first names of the Raskins, but those are his two new lawyers, and they're really the main people. They're Florida-based. They're they're former federal prosecutors. They're not splashy names, but they're supposed to be good lawyers. Um, but his thing was nobody knows who they are. So we got to get Rudy. Rudy's going to be the big name people recognize. So I did that and Rudy, who for some Donald Trump is exceptionally good at making people keep coming back for the head pat from him in his world. Michael Cohen was one. There've been a bunch of others over the years. Um Rudy is certainly one of them. I mean Trump has repeatedly denied Giuliani what he's actually wanted. He wanted to be Secretary of State. He wasn't going to be that. He has uh, sought other input on a number of issues. Trump didn't give that to him. Rudy was the only person who defended Trump after Access Hollywood publicly in a a real way. And even that didn't really satisfy Trump. But Rudy is excited to be back in action. He's going through a divorce himself. Um, He's been laying low for a variety of reasons in terms of media over the last year and a half. And I think that he's loving being in the mix um, and being the lawyer to the president. I think that that's exciting to him. The things he is saying are less than exciting to Trump's legal team and to Trump's um, comms folks in the White House, because the things he's saying have sometimes been inaccurate, um, inflammatory. They have set deadlines that nobody else agrees on, um, like when they're going to when they want to set the timeline for a or the debt, their own in- internal deadline for establishing an interview with Robert Mueller, which came as news to almost everybody, as best as I can tell when he said that to The Wall Street Journal. They feel like Rudy's winging it and they feel like they already have a client in the president who wings it. It's not so helpful to have a lawyer who's winging it too.
0: I want to ask about your reporting a little bit. How do you keep straight all the different stories you're working on and even individual stories like the Russia story to the degree it is an individual story? Do you have, do you have some method that, that you've used that's different than when you were doing political reporting in the past just because it seems like there's so many stories swirling around at all times that you're, you have your fingers in?
1: No, it's actually about the same. Um, And it's it's a great it's a great question. Um, And I actually feel like I'm losing track of them a little bit. But I have a running conversation with a couple of colleagues. Mike Schmidt's one of them. Um, Some on my White House team um, are others. Alex Burns on the politics team is another. And that just kind of helps me not lose my place. Right. Like we're just sort of constantly talking about what we're hearing and where things are. But I don't I don't have any I don't have any special sauce system. Trump has been attacking the media by name for a very long time. He did it t- again today. Whoa,
0: what? Uh yeah. Well, no. I mean, he uh today he uh talked about revoking press credentials. And this is, you know, a version of this he's been he's been doing for a long time. He's he's gone after you by name. He's gone after other people by name. Mm -hmm. Is this something that you're worried about for the country in terms of, you know, the free expression of the media and free expression and, and freedom of the press? Or do you is this something that you think is just sort of Trumpian bluster and that other issues there will be sort of substantive action on? But this is not one of them.
1: No, I think well, I don't I don't think he's going to take away credentials. I mean, I don't, it, that's also just it's so stupid. It's like you're not. First of all, if, if if cameras weren't allowed into the White House, the person who would be the saddest is Donald Trump. Number one. Number two, because there is nothing he loves more than media attention. Number two, we don't need credentials to cover him. This is the thing that he sort of doesn't get when you when he was a real estate developer. He was great at manipulating Gossip page coverage of himself or even sometimes business page coverage of himself. But this is government coverage and people don't need his permission to cover him. That's not how this works. So that's just a fundamental silliness. And this is not a campaign rally where you're not letting in. And even that was so stupid. He would they kept taking away people's credentials to go to the campaign rallies. Every campaign rally was live streamed. So in in 2018, that's less of a threat than it would have been 10 years ago or 14 years ago. What does worry me is the Jeff Sessions leak investigations, which he seems to be doing to try to appease a leak-obsessed president who has also been described as the leaker-in-chief by his own staff. So you can do it that way you will. But Obama was not great on this, right? I mean, like, I don't know why everything has to be but Obama um, but or but Trump. Obama was did not have a good record on 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 actual matters of freedom of the press in terms of in terms of leak investigations and in terms of arrests and phone records and so forth. Um, we don't know what Trump is actually doing. We don't know what Jeff Sessions is doing yet. We do know that there was a report this week that, or this weekend, I don't remember when it hit, that uh, in The Guardian, that Trump, either allies or members of Trump's team, I'm not exactly clear who it was, had hired private investigators to dig up dirt both on top Obama foreign policy advisors who had advised on the Iran deal that Trump wanted to vacate and to dig up, quote unquote, dirt on journalists who they thought would be close to those contacts. That's not freedom of the press. That's actually really
0: scary. For a long time, you did stories, co and I believe you are still writing a
1: book with Glenn Thrush. Is that true? Um, the publisher has um, said that Glenn won't be part of the book. Um, I am still under contract for the book, but I don't have much more to say on it right now.
0: I guess I was wondering just how your job has changed because you worked for a very long time very closely with Thrush, who the Times investigated on allegations of sexually inappropriate behavior, and he was suspended and now he's back doing work. He has a long piece in the paper today, uh, co-bylined about Mick Mulvaney, the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I was just wondering how your, how your job has, has changed now that you're no longer working with him so closely, if it has.
1: Um, It hasn't. It hasn't changed um, um, dramatically. I mean, I'm still writing a lot of the same pieces that I would have otherwise. Um, I might be doing them differently in a different type of collaboration, but my job is the same.
0: I went and looked at your Twitter account, uh, as I often do. That's
1: such a mistake. But yes, I know you do it. Uh, Yes.
0: Well, there are days where you don't go more than a couple hours over like a 24 hour period without tweeting or retweeting something. And so Mm -hmm. I, I guess I'm wondering, number one, how important you think Twitter is to your job. And number two... Uh, how much stress you think it brings to you as a reporter, and to reporters who engage in social media a lot, as well as as doing their stories?
1: I think that Twitter is a useful reporting tool and sometimes, but an utterly toxic swamp. That nonetheless, I I engage in more than I probably should. I think that look, it's still a great way to promote stories. It's 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 also a great reporting tool in the sense that. I'll tweet a piece of information and someone will contact me and they'll have more information. And so in that way, it's great. But it's just a time suck. And look, a lot of us need an editor, right? I need an editor. I don't have an editor on Twitter. I have an editor on the paper. And so I tend to be less precise in 140 characters. And sometimes that I leave people confused as to my meaning. And then I make the mistake of engaging and trying to explain it, which just leads you down a rabbit hole. So less time spent there is probably better. You find it addictive the way a lot of us do? I I do, but I also find it very stressful and I find it needlessly so. it's just it's like it's literally like um choosing to go stand on a very crowded subway platform in ninety degree weather. Who would do that? Well, not me, but
0: I go on Twitter, so maybe I would <laughs> You got, in, you got in some hot water arguing with people on Twitter a couple of weeks ago at the White House Correspondents Association dinner when Michelle Wolf, a comedian, made some jokes about Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and uh, you you tweeted, I'll just read your tweet, that press secretary, that's Sarah Huckabee Sanders, sat and absorbed intense criticism of, of her physical appearance, her job performance, and so forth, instead of walking out on national television was impressive, you wrote, which was something that other, other colleagues and... Uh, people in the media echoed wolf replied that the jokes were about her despicable behavior rather than her appearance i guess what i'm curious is is why you felt the need to stick up for sarah huckabee sanders and if you thought michelle wolf was being dishonest by saying that
1: so a couple of things i wasn't sticking up for sarah sanders um i got lumped in with people who i think were andrea mitchell said that she thought michelle wolf should apologize to sarah sanders i don't think anyone needed to apologize to anyone Uh, that weekend, um, I was attempting to and this is my point about imprecision on Twitter I was attempting to compare her with what the Schlapps had just done um, Matt and Mercedes schlapp who made this mercedes is a is a communications advisor within the White House matt is a is a lobbyist um, or a consultant or something um, and they made a big showy display of walking out and then attending after parties um, and Sanders, who is not you know does not have deep history with with Washington, uh, despite having grown up as the daughter of a governor, I uh, does not, you know, have a, have, have a ton of background in this world. And, you know, I want people to stay in and, and sit and, and keep engaging. And they didn't. And she did. So that was really what I was talking about. You can argue that I, I should have um, been more precise in that. And I'll totally take that. There's nothing wrong with making fun of how Sarah Sanders does her job she should be held accountable for how she does her job. And I have been one of the people who holds her accountable for how she does her job. I think that, uh, forget about the smoky eye joke, which is the one you were talking about, if you put together smoky eye, the aunt Lydia reference to uh, handmaid's tale, she compared Sanders to aunt Lydia and the softball coach joke. And that was really the one that, uh, was the most pointed where she compared Sanders to a softball coach, which in comedy has usually been used to describe a masculine woman. If that's not talking about her looks, then I guess I'm confused about how, what a what a softball coach does that is similar to what Sarah Sanders does every day there. And I think that Michelle Wolf was walking that line. And I think that it is never a great thing when women are having their looks made fun of, whether it is Chelsea Clinton or Sarah Sanders or whomever, because it, among other things, I don't like it, but it, it makes it in a case like this, it makes it harder to point to. The justifiable criticism of what she does at the podium uh, and and other aspects of her job. And again, to be clear, I think I got lumped in with a lot of other people. I made the mistake of answering a friend on Twitter who had been sort of popping off. and this is the other problem with Twitter is we all sort of forget we're not in a slack chat room sometimes. But this is a tweet about a line from a comedian, and the Amount of backlash seems a, a wee bit excessive given the, the relative import. I think a lot of people
0: felt that sort of the media's, many people in the media's uh, sort of seeming offended by it or being upset about it was a sign either that people wanted to protect a source or just a sign that we're living in a time where people tend to get offended by the wrong things.
1: I think, I think they and you were wrong. So, I mean, and I think that people have a hard time accepting that, at least in my case, I can't speak for everybody else who tweeted, but they misread and misunderstood.
0: Did it make you feel differently about engaging on
1: Twitter? Uh, I mean, just generally, that that experience? Um, I mean, I always have these experiences periodically about engaging on Twitter. It certainly reminded me that not everybody is uh, acting in good faith and that not all criticisms are on the level. It went to a weird place where there were people like Judd Apatow, who I really respect, but who was talking about how comedians shouldn't be silenced. Like, who's silencing her? She has a Netflix show. So, I mean, I understand what he's saying, but people always assume that they know why reporters are doing what they're doing. They often don't. Do
0: you have any sense of whether the president uses Twitter for something besides tweeting?
1: I don't get the sense that I mean, as far look, he used to be really bad about using it. It was mostly done by Dan Scavino. I think it's still mostly done by Dan Scavino. But I do think that uh, Trump scans through a little bit more than he used to. Not, not, not. He's still a newspaper clip person, though. He's not. He's not an internet guy. Do you ever turn your phone off? I know I heard you say a year ago that you never did. I do to reboot it. Does that count? I meant like for sleep things like that. <laughs> I don't turn it off when I'm asleep. I haven't slept through the night in years. Well, on
0: that note, Maggie Haberman is a White House correspondent (laughs) for The New York Times and an analyst at CNN. And uh, I want to thank you, Maggie, for coming on, I Have to Ask.
1: Thank you for having me. And that's
0: our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. And thanks for the additional help from Jason DeLeon at Slate Studios in Brooklyn. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at iChotner, that's iChotner, for more information about the show. And thanks for listening.